Would you join me in prayer? Father, we praise you for the glory that you have and that you give and that you invite us into. Lord, that you would make us who are far, that you would draw us near and you would do so at your expense. Lord, you have given us more than we deserve. You've given us more than we understand. And so as we get ready to dig into your word, Lord, I pray that you would, I join with Paul in praying that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. That we may see more fully what you have given us, what you have called us to, and how you have treated us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're at the time of year when vacations are being planned. You're, you're starting to think about, maybe you've already been making arrangements for your big summer trip and what that will mean. You're planning out places to see, activities to do, people to visit, accommodations so that you're not homeless in another town, and of course, the travel route. And with the travel route, you are realizing that at one point or a million, you will have to answer from within the confines of your vehicle if you are driving, how long until we get there? It's a redundant question. Carries that ominous word, until. Because until can mean a whole lot of things. As a youth pastor, I learned that until can mean car sickness, buses malfunctioning, flat tires, and worse, for your family until brings out the needs for bathrooms and snacks and movies, travel updates, bathrooms, snacks, peace treaties, <laughs> and snacks, just to name a few. One thing that we saw, and you, you would have probably only seen it last week in the passage if you were really paying attention, because we didn't draw a lot of attention to it, but this week we are going to draw attention to it. Back in verse 14, it's where we ended. The Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we inquire possession of it, and then the part that we emphasize to the praise of his glory. But this until... We have the Holy Spirit sealed as this guarantee of the, the inheritance that we will one day acquire possession of it, and the Holy Spirit is with us until we have possession of it. And that until can be, be a bit scary, a bit unnerving, as we, either, as we wait for either the day that Christ returns or until we die and are united with him. And this until has needs that are much more urgent and necessary than veggie straws. If, if ever there was a need more urgent than veggie straws, just kidding, that, those things are weird. Um, they're neither veggie nor straw, let's be honest. But we have a lot of needs in the until 
until we acquire possession of the inheritance guaranteed for us in all its richness. And in this until, we live, we work, we struggle through a broken world that is quite different from our eternal inheritance. And Paul, while very much praising God for the gospel work that's happening among the Ephesians, he's also going to be praying for them in this until. Let's start, we're going to start reading in verse 15 and 16. We're just going to read a couple verses here. Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul thinking of this until, but he starts with thanks for this reason, this gospel summary. He's summarizing everything that's come up to this, that they've been predestined for adoption, that they would be made holy and blameless, that they would become children of God according to the purpose of his will, according to the riches of his grace, that their their sins would be forgiven, their trespasses would be forgiven in the blood of Christ. He's grateful for their faith, that they've been given salvation, that they've become children of God, that the Holy Spirit's been put on them as a seal and a guarantee. He's thankful for their love in the saints, that not only have they, can they say they've been saved, but their spiritual vitality is being displayed in their love for one another, and this results for Paul in this never-ceasing thanksgiving and prayer. But then Paul records his prayer. And this prayer that Paul records is quite different than the going around the Thanksgiving table discussion of what we're grateful for. It's very different than that. It actually looks more like intercession than prayer. Intercession, if you're not familiar with that word, it's one of the weird words that we Christians use and pretend that it's normal. It means we're interceding, we're we're praying for a need, that there's this need that a person has. You think of of a student in school who needs to be tutored. So you would go to the teacher and you would find tutoring for your child who needs it. You would find that extra assistance because they need it. So you would be interceding on their behalf to make sure their needs are met. So Paul is interceding, and when you're interceding for someone, you do it according to their actual needs. If a friend has a broken leg, and you're doing intercessory prayer, praying for their needs, you're not asking God to bless their appendix, the most optional organ in the body. You're not asking God to clear up their tonsils as they're dealing with this broken femur. No, you're praying for their leg because that's their needs. So Paul, let's keep this in mind as we get ready to read this prayer, he is praying for the needs of the Ephesians. And as we look at the background of the Ephesians, I think we can see that we have some pretty similar needs. One thing is you're reading the Bible. One important task to do for the Bible reader is contextual work. So, for example, in the Old Testament, when you get to Isaiah 6, And Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, the first question for the Bible reader should be, who is King Uzziah, and what was the climate like during his day? What was his reign like? So then you go to the Kings and the Chronicles, you find Uzziah, you you read about him, you learn that there was 
financial prosperity in Israel at the same time as there was great spiritual decline. And he was a king who boasted in his strength so much so that he walked into the temple where he shouldn't go and God gave him leprosy. Well, that's going to tell you about the spiritual climate of the time that Isaiah is preaching into. So then when we get to the New Testament, we have Paul's letters to the churches. One helpful thing we can do is find out, does this church show up in the book of Acts? Does this church show up anywhere else in the New Testament? Ephesians, the Ephesian church shows up all over in the New Testament. So Paul goes there in, I think it's Acts 19. He shows up, starts preaching in the synagogue, preaches for around two years in the synagogue, which is rare. Usually Paul got kicked out of the synagogues way before that. But he preached, the whole time he was there, he's preaching in the synagogues, and a whole lot of Roman citizens were coming to Christ. So much so, and, and they were abandoning their idolatry, and you're thinking, that's great. Well, it was so much so that the silversmith was running out of business because people weren't buying their idols from him anymore. So, so many people got saved that it had an economic impact that negatively affected the idol industry. And so, the silversmith is appalled that he's not making money. There's a temple to Artemis, a Greek god of, of creation and fertility, and a huge riot breaks out. Paul tries to enter. Everyone's like, you're going to die. The moment you go in there, you're going to die. We're going to keep you out. The mayor comes out, settles it, and says, look, if you guys keep this up, the Roman soldiers are going to come in. No one wants us. They're like, you're right. They all go home. Paul had to leave. He got chased out of town by the, by the, by the pagan worshipers instead of the Jews, which was also rare. In Acts 20, Paul, while traveling back, arranges a meeting, not in Ephesus, but with the Ephesian elders. He warns them that wolves in sheep's clothing are going to arise from their midst. These people who are, who are seeking to abuse the people of God, have ungodly control over the people of God, teach false doctrine. And then we get another peek at the Ephesian church in Revelation as Jesus sends them a letter via John. And here's what Jesus tells the Ephesians. You guys are really good at believing the right thing. You guys are really good at doing the right thing. You detest the things I detest. You detest the work of Nickelback. I mean, the Nicolaitans. <laughs> I, think, I think there's some comparisons that can be drawn. But you've lost the love you had at first, and you're not doing the things you did at first. In essence, Jesus tells them, you're, you're nailing the theology, and you are not loving me well while you do it. See, the Nicolaitans and, and the, the Artemis, these were things that were... Uh, they had practices that were, were sexually charged, were very evil. And the Ephesians, this Ephesian church is a diverse group of people. There's a strong Jewish presence. Paul was preaching in the synagogue for two years. There's a strong Roman presence. As so many came to Christ that the silversmith start, had to get a second job, had to start driving Uber. They're in this culture 
that's very pagan, very worldly, and all of this is weighing on them. They have threats and tension coming up from within the church. And being a church of very different people, very different backgrounds, in a very secular setting, they had needs. We have needs. They eventually lost affection and affectionate practices. I have a feeling because of what Jesus says that Jesus' letter came after, quite a bit after, Paul's letter where Paul gives thanks because of their love for the saints and how they treat the other saints. Now as we get ready to read this prayer and dig into what Paul is praying for and how these needs are our needs, I want you just to think, just as a moment of like sheer practicality, one way to apply this passage is to pray these words for yourself, pray these words for your family, pray these words for our global partners, for the churches that they are planting. Let's pray these things for each other. It's a pretty good prayer. Let's read it. Verses 17 to 23. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. While going through the until, we have serious needs for our survival and joy. We need to know the triune God. When you hear the descriptor of the setting, description of the setting of of Ephesus, you might think of all kinds of practical needs that the people would have. Oh, Lord, help them to have the the right apologetic against Artemis. Help them to, to show how false this is. Help them to be strong against the temptations of the Nicolaitans and help them to, you know, you might think all kinds of things. I've noticed this about my own prayer life. When sometimes when I get into intercessory prayer, my intercessory prayers don't sound like prayer. You know when you're watching, for those of you who watch sports a lot, you know when you're watching sports, especially like your favorite team, and the coach is doing the wrong thing? 
and you think, you know what play they need to run. You know what they need to start doing in practice. And you start giving advice from your television set. And I get it. You Iowa fans are probably right on the offensive side of the ball. But at least you were. We'll see. I sound like that in my prayer sometimes. God, would you just do this? I start trying to call plays into heaven. God, would you just make it happen? God, would you just do this? As though he's a butler or the, you know, some sort of service staff. Well, I think we can all be thankful that Paul gives a better example in what it means to pray for people than your pastor does. Because he doesn't start with, God, would you just? God, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. God, would they know you better in all your fullness? Would they know you as the Father of glory? Would they know Jesus as the Lord, the authority? Would they know him as the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the one who bears, who gives us his righteousness, the one who bears our sin, the one who liberates us from sin, the one who fulfills the law on our behalf because we never could on our own? God, would you help them to know you? Would you, you've given them the Holy Spirit leading them to truth, leading them to their, the conviction of their sin, the knowledge of you. God, would you give them a knowledge of you? Now, here's the deal. Knowledge of God in the Bible, as it's seen in the Bible, is never trivial. It is always personal. It is always reciprocal. You cannot know God without Him knowing you. You cannot know God without the understanding that He knows everything about you and in knowing everything about you, loves you so much, he sent his son to die on the cross for your sin. Think of Psalm 139. God, you, your knowledge of me is too wonderful for me to comprehend. You think of Jesus when he tells about the separating of the sheep and the goats. He doesn't, when he casts off the goats, when he sends them away, these people who have, who have abandoned him, these people who have not believed in him. He doesn't say, you did the wrong things. He says, I never knew you. Their problem is they were not known. They did not know God. They were not known by God. We need a knowledge of God that goes both ways. Because we can't, and if we, if we have a knowledge of God, that does not include the fact that he knows you intimately and personally as your creator, then your knowledge of God is drastically and tragically incomplete. 
We need to know God and be known by him. We need to know him and walk in his ways. We need to have fellowship with the light and, without, and we cannot have fellowship with the light and with the darkness. And I've seen too many times, I've seen it, unfortunately, I've seen it in my life at different times. I've, I've seen it in the lives of others where people say, oh, I want to know God and I want to know the world really well too. And when you try to do both, you're only going to know the world well. We need to have fellowship with the light. And so Paul starts, their greatest need isn't that they would be safe from these violent Artemis worshipers. Their greatest need isn't anything to do with the, the Nicolaitans. It's not even that they would have unity as Jews and, and Romans, Gentiles together. Their greatest need is that they would just know God. And then he starts praying that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would have accurate spiritual sight. In 2 Kings 6, Elisha is out with his servant. The Syrians are coming to get him because they don't like that he tells the king of Israel all their plans as a prophet of God and therefore thwarting their plans. So like, well, if we get rid of the prophet, then we can take him. It's like he, he was like part prophet, part Jedi. It was, uh, it's an interesting time in Israel's history. Well, the Syrians are coming out. Elisha's servant is in full-blown panic mode because he just sees, like, there's a whole army coming for Elisha. He's like, well, I'm no military strategist, but I know numbers, and that's a lot, and we're two. And so he's panicking, and Elisha goes, oh, Lord, would you open the eyes of my servant? And all of a sudden, he sees that the hills are full of horses with chariots of fire. Oh, well, I like these odds. So as they're coming... Elisha goes, Lord, would you make them blind? They all go blind. And they're like, hey, we're looking for Elisha. And Elisha's like, hey, he went that way. They can't see him. They don't know. They get overrun. The problem that we have is it's so easy for us to focus on what's immediately in front of us. I need to make X amount of money. If I don't find someone to marry by a certain point, I've never, like, we, just, we just give up on stuff. Or my problem at work is too insurmountable. I'm going to need to lie to get ahead. I, we, we, we find ourselves making worldly exceptions to things that we know are wrong. Because we get so focused on what's right in front of us. And Paul is praying that through the knowledge of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that the, their hearts would be enlightened, their minds would be enlightened, their eyes would be enlightened to a few things. And this is it. That we would know the great hope. And I'm actually going to combine great hope and glorious inheritance here. because they're, they're together so tightly in the text, but I feel like it's separate things. You would know the hope to which he has called you. So many times we let salvation be painted in a way of I'm going to follow Christ, but it means I'm going to miss out on all these things from the world. No, you're not. What are you going to miss out on? More brokenness? 
going to miss out on amplifying your insecurities for all to see. You're going to miss out on greater loneliness and rejection. You're going to miss out on greed, anger, bitterness. I'm willing to miss out on those things. We need our eyes to be open, not to what the world says we're missing out on, but what God has actually called us to, and it's a great hope. The Lord has called you to this hope. Think about the hope of your salvation, that the God of heaven hears you when you pray. I like having that hope. That's a hope God has called you to. That the God of heaven has called you to a hope that when you confess your sins, you're forgiven and you're cleansed of all unrighteousness. You're called to a hope that you've been set on a trajectory of holiness. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it out until the day of Christ. And here's one of the areas where I think we are so tempted to look at the the physical nature of our struggles and just give up in despair. And I know there's, there's, I would say nearly all of us, right, have something that we're struggling with that I don't even need to say think about your struggles. It's just in your mind right in front of you all the time. Here's the hope you've been called to. One day that struggle is going to be talked about in past tense. Think about this. Maybe it's an addiction of some kind. Maybe it's an insecurity that you can't shake. One day it's going to be past tense. One day, that's not going to be true about you anymore, whether it's, it's something that you just feel guilty of or something that you feel like the whole world sees, even though none of us see it about you. It's not going to be true anymore. That's the hope he's called you to, that you've been made new, you're being made new. These things won't be true about you anymore. Oh, I pray that the eyes of our hearts would see that and that they would see not only the salvation now of this great hope we've been called to and this working out that's happening now, but that we would also see the later. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The final result Throughout Ephesians 1, Paul has been gushing about what we have in the Lord. Talked about the inheritance obtained. We're the heritage of God. Talking about the inheritance that we're waiting to experience. And Paul's now saying, just right after saying, this this possession that we're waiting to, to, to acquire, he's saying, oh God, would you help them see it? Help them see the fullness of it. Help them see that all these little down payments of the Holy Spirit, these moments of of spiritual elation, these moments of, of, of conviction and truth and feeling the freedom of forgiveness, that they're just a foretaste of what's to come. So that whatever you're struggling with now, whether it's a trial that you're in the midst of, a sin that you can't seem to shake, a fear or anxiety that's weighing over you, It's a light, momentary affliction. 
compared to the surpassing greatness of being with our Lord forever. We need to see the riches of this glorious inheritance. I don't know about you. I don't know about you. But some days this is tough, right? Some days this world is tough. This life is tough. There's days where we're like, like I just want to give up. Walking with Jesus is hard. The world make it, makes it look so easy to do whatever they're doing. This is so hard. There's a glorious inheritance. And when you start getting glimpses of that, you look at the toughness, you're like, yeah, this is hard. 100% worth it. There's something waiting. I'm going to be brought into a city and I'm just going to have tears flowing. And my heavenly father is going to take his gigantic, gentle hand that put the stars in their place, and he's going to wipe those tears. There's a glorious inheritance. So as you're feeling pressures to be just like the world, as you're feeling pressures to... to achieve a certain status as you're feeling the anxiety and the weight of all the brokenness around you know that there's a glorious inheritance waiting this is a perseverance producing knowledge and it's a knowledge that 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 as that knowledge grows as, as the, this prayer unfolds in our life, as we see more and more of the hope we've been called to, of the riches of, his, of the glorious inheritance, that those, those struggles, those insecurities, those addictions, it becomes easier to walk away from those because the foretaste of heaven far outweighs the filth of this world. And the more that the eyes of our hearts are enlightened and the more that we see this, the more that we have this spiritual sight coming in, the more we are able to see the garbage of this world for what it is. The glitz and the glamour and the greed. Thieves can break in and steal it. Moths and rust can destroy it. It's filth, it's garbage, it's not worth your time. And there's a miracle that happens in the children of God as their eyes are opened up and they can see, wait, pornography is actually garbage. Alcohol isn't doing a thing good for me. Overworking myself isn't proving anything to anyone. My anger is not producing joy. Go figure. Maybe I should repent of it. And we start moving in the direction of the hope that he's called us. And finally, we see this grandiose power. Now here's, Paul does this thing in Ephesians. If he was talking about anything else, it would be empty hyperbole. But he's not. He's talking about God. He's not exaggerating a thing. It sounds like it, but he's not. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? It's like a kid describing the Incredible Hulk. 
What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? You see the next two words? Toward us. I, I geek out over the Olympics. I feel like we should all, for the duration of the Olympics, have live broadcasts of all the events for free that we can pick between, and the whole world takes two weeks off paid vacation. That's what I think should happen. I love the Olympics. It's so great. There's the most interesting random sports. You're going to wonder, who thought of this game? And some of it is really entertaining to watch for two weeks. When we watch the Olympics, we watch great power and strength and agility put on display for us. But that guy that the greatest event you can watch. And, and all you need to watch is 10 minutes of it. Do you know that speed walking is an Olympic sport? Look it up. Look it up. It's so much fun to watch. But you know what none of those walkers do? They don't use any of that walking speed for you, toward you. They use it just for your entertainment. Because like, there's this like weird swivel with the hips. It's like their spine. It, I'm telling you, you, you just have to see it. But none of them are using that towards you to get your groceries, to get your mail out of the mailbox at record speed. They don't even know who you are. They don't even care who you are. God is not displaying his power for us, although he does that. But he is using it toward us for our good. All the immeasurable greatness of his power used towards us, this life-giving power. This for sin forgiving power that our sin, our hearts that were scarlet could be made white as freshly fallen snow. The power to produce good in us. The power to sustain us when life gets really hard. The power even to take us and use us. All of that power of God put towards us to accomplish his will. It is a power toward us, and it is a power most clearly seen as it is displayed in Christ. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, this resurrecting power. He, he seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but the age to come, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Look at this. He, 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 I'm going to give you a few P's here for those of you who are keeping notes. He, he, the power displayed in Christ in his place. That he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. There is nothing in all creation, things seen or unseen, that is not underneath Christ. And he's not slightly above it. He's not like a couple inches taller than all rule and authority. He is far above. Yesterday I took a couple of my boys, went on a bike ride to the High Trestle Trail. And since it was just the three of us, I thought, there's wildlife trails down there. Let's walk on them. So we walked down a hill, a lot of thorns. We got under the bridge. We were not a little bit under the bridge. We were far below. Christ is far above all rule 
and power and authority and dominion. He is far above it. And he has a place of prominence. He has a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but the age to come, meaning there will never be someone more royal and praiseworthy than Jesus Christ. He has a posture. All things are under his feet. Psalm 2 tells us the nations are a footstool to the Lord. Think about it this way. Your greatest fears, your greatest anxieties, your greatest struggles are a footstool to Jesus. Do you think he has it under control? I sure do. This situation you can't seem to get your head around is under the feet of Jesus. Categorize your problems like this. As you think about these stresses, as you think about what's in front of you, end that prayer with, and Lord, I know all of this is but the footstool of Christ. And he has a position as the head over all things to the church. And listen to this description of the church, to the church that we as Westchester belong to, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, that the church is fullness of Christ. The power that brought Jesus from heaven to earth, to the cross, to the grave, and back to heaven is the power that God uses towards us. And we need so desperately for our, the eyes of our hearts to see that. Don't give time to the thought that God isn't doing much for you. We need all of this and more in that until that we are living in. You guys remember, there's a story in the Gospels. The disciples are out on the boat, crossing the Sea of Galilee by night. Jesus had said, hey, I'll meet you there in the morning. One of the great pranks of our Savior. A storm raises up. They can't get ahead. It's dark. I'm sure they're not even sure they're heading in the right direction. They're confused. It's scary. It's a big storm. They're like, hey, someone's walking on the lake. That's weird. Must be a ghost. We must all be dead right now. Peter goes, Jesus, is it you? Ask me to come out and I will. And Jesus goes, yeah, come on out. It's great. Peter gets out, starts walking on the water towards Jesus. And then what does Peter do? He sees the waves. And Peter sinks. Until Jesus pulls him back out. Sets him back on the water, and they walk back to the boat. There's so many times where we are walking with Jesus. We're like, oh, this is great. There's a storm around me. I'm doing so good. And then the eyes of our heart start wandering to the waves, start wandering to the anxiety, start wandering to our sins, starts wandering to the pressures of the world, to hearing, hearing all this talk from the world of this sin is actually right, you're actually wrong. You shouldn't be bold with your walk with Christ. There's nothing to repent of over there. We start hearing this doubt of, you're not good enough, you never will be. God doesn't really love you. Maybe this isn't even real to begin with. And we start sinking real fast. It's like the moment, it feels like the moment we've started sinking, we've already sank, right? Right? 
Am I the only one that gets that way, or are you guys with me? Paul is praying, Lord, as they're out on that water like Peter was, would you keep their eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? Everything that he's given them, the hope, the inheritance that's waiting for them, the amazing, immeasurable greatness of your power, the same power that pulled Jesus out as they're looking at Jesus, that they would see that that power is used towards them. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father God, this is what we need. Lord, would you help the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, so focused on Christ and all that we have, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim, that they would fade from sight, that we, Lord, would would we just almost forget that they're there? You've called us to this great hope that's ours even now. That these things that we can't stand in ourselves for one reason or another, there's one day, they're, they're just not even going to be true about us anymore. Would you help us to see that, Lord? Would you help us to focus on your Son? It's in His holy and precious name we pray. Amen.